John Ziegler here, excited to announce that we have our first sponsor of the Individual One podcast. Now, as you'd probably expect, I do not do endorsements unless I actually use the product. And I just started using this one. It's Imbue CBD. If you're a golf fan like I am, and you've probably read about how CBD is all the rage with all sorts of respected people raving about the various positive physical aspects of CBD, especially among people like me who are, let's face it, starting to feel the impact of aging. Recently, I started trying multiple products from Imbue CBD, and I can already tell that, among other things, I am for sure sleeping more soundly, and my wife says she loves the Imbue CBD facial cream, although, to be honest, she doesn't need it. In case you haven't heard, CBD is the powerful extract from the hemp version of cannabis. And while it may offer many of the health benefits of marijuana, there's no high, it's legal, and doesn't require a prescription. The source I trust for CBD is Imbue CBD. This is a top-of-the-line product and classy in every way. Consequently, Imbue CBD is not inexpensive, but I got you a discount to explore all the many ways CBD might be able to help you. Go to ImbueCBD.com and get 25% off when you enter John Z. Again, enter John Z for 25% off at IMBUECBD.com. That's ImbueCBD.com, promo code John Z. This is episode number 94 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host, John Ziegler. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the critically acclaimed program which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because unfortunately no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. And unlike the corporate media, we here at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been compromised or co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. And follow us on Twitter at, at Individual One Pod. That's at Individual, the number one pod. Well, quite a bit has happened since the last time we spoke. Boy. That escalated quickly. Uh, during episode number 93, I discussed in great detail how I saw that what I'm calling a cancellation contagion was beginning to form. And I'm sure those of you who listened to the episode number 93 were a little bit confused as to why on the Individual One podcast I was spending an enormous amount of time on the cancellation of the Ivy League basketball tournament. Not exactly the most important thing in the world or even in this country or even within college basketball. But I sensed at the time, because of the nature of academia and the importance of Ivy League and human psychology, that that was going to set off a brush fire, a cancellation contagion, as I have referred to it. And uh, wow, uh, I was more right than I had any idea that I might have been, uh, because since that time, virtually every single major event in America has, in fact, been completely and totally canceled. And I really do believe I really do believe that if the – and who knows what would, what would happen if the Ivy League had not done that. But that was absolutely the spark 
that started all of this. And I've written a column, which you can find at Individual One Pod, our Twitter handle, uh, called, uh, or essentially called, the Cancellation Contagion. And I go through what I think is a really, really important concept that these cancellations are largely, not totally, obviously, but they are largely political in nature. And what I mean by political is not necessarily just Democrats versus Republicans, although there is a Democrat versus Republican aspect of this because of Trump, which I'll get to in a little bit, because this entire podcast is going to be devoted to Trump and the coronavirus. You're going to hear things on this podcast you're not going to hear anywhere else. That's what we do. It's unique. And that's what's great about the podcast format. You're going to hear things you're not allowed to say anywhere else in any sort of, of uh, medium. Uh, and there's no one else to say it because this is a very unique situation where I am an anti-Trump conservative, so I can understand and tell the truth about him. But with regard to the political nature of these cancellations, a lot of this is backside coverage. And that's why they all happened in a domino effect, okay? It's really important to understand that from a psychological standpoint. If this had all been based in, my God, the world is going to end, and we must cancel everything now, then that would have all happened within an hour. If, if there, this was all done within, with facts and logic, then that's the response that every single major organization would have had. It would have been immediate. Instead, it was one shoe dropping, followed by the next shoe dropping. With regard to basketball, the Ivy League cancels, then the rest of academia panics, all the colleges are canceling, the NCAA's hand is tied, they are essentially forced into canceling, the NBA gets one, or actually two in the end, positive coronavirus uh, results, they cancel uh, their uh, games for the rest of the month and probably longer than that. Uh, uh, then uh, obviously hockey has to follow because they are all in the same arenas. Uh, you have baseball that follows, which I don't really understand because baseball, other than golf, is probably the sport where there's the least amount of social contact if you're going to get rid of spectators. But they have no cover because – uh, basketball and hockey already did it, so they can't be the ones standing. And then there's golf. And this is the sport that is uh, closest to my heart. I'm a golfer. I'm a tournament golfer. And on the amateur level, I've covered, I used to, I worked for like 15 minutes for the PGA Tour many, many years ago. Uh, I've, I've been to the Masters as a, a journalist. Uh, you know, I, have, I, I know golf as well as anybody. And uh, it, I was hoping that golf might hold on. And it's interesting because golf was in a unique position. One, because of the, last, the lack of social interaction in golf, the inherent social distancing. Unlike basketball, you're not sweating on top of each other. And therefore, uh, you, know, you can make an argument that you're really not risking. Uh, it's not a risky behavior to be playing golf. It's about the, the least risky behavior as you could possibly have. Spectators are another story. But there's not just the social distancing aspect of golf, but it's also the fact that the vast majority of golf fans are not liberals. It's a very conservative crowd. And so, therefore, you don't have to necessarily worry about the virtue signaling aspect of this. And there's absolutely a virtue signaling aspect of it. And it's not the whole thing. Some of it's subconscious. 
a lot of it has to do with, with being uh, showing yourself not to be pro-Trump because that's part of what's happened here is that if you are somehow uh, in any way, shape, or form uh, uh, calling for a reasonable response to this, you are seen as pro-Trump. And, uh, and unless you are against this uh, virus uh, with everything possible, we must shut down life. We must decide that life does not exist. Unless you do that, you're somehow pro-Trump. And that's the virtue signaling aspect. You must, you must signal your view, virtue to the world by showing how against this virus you are, that you're willing to do everything, even if it makes no sense, even if it has no impact over whether or not the virus spreads. Uh, you must do it in order to show the world your virtue. Uh, golf, you would think, would be a little bit isolated from that. And 10 years ago, they would have been. But uh, as I thought about this more, I realized, you know what? Golf is going to cave, too. And golf is going to cave because of the fact that it's perceived as conservative. Because, and it, I mean, people even said this once the PGA Tour shut down and then the Masters shut down the next morning, which, of course, again, it's all a domino effect. No one has any cover to continue on. So without political cover, you must curl into the fetal position. But golf was concerned about the, the fact that, well, if we're the only ones playing, it's going to make us look as if we are elitist, look as if we are tone deaf, look as if we are pro-Trump. No one said that, but that's, that's the way, that was clearly part of the implication as I saw it. And so therefore, golf, ironically, was even more vulnerable to attack and had even less political cover given the perfect storm of circumstances here than other sports. And, uh, you know, I am incensed at what golf has done. Uh, not because, you know, the Masters got canceled, which is one of those rare events every year. That, you know, you, I mean, my gosh. And it's, to me, it's, it's essentially like uh, canceling Christmas uh, or, or you know, this idea that somehow they're going to postpone it. You can't have Christmas in July. Even if uh, QVC pretends that you can't, you cannot have Christmas in July. The Masters is in April, and if it's not in April, it is not the Masters. You can have Christmas in July, but it's not the it's not Christmas. All right. So, so the to me, it's been canceled, I, and I'm not sure they're ever going to play it this year anyway. No one knows at this point. Maybe in the fall. But the reason I'm incensed is because it has now created another domino effect. Another domino effect where it has gotten into real life because these things matter. I really believe that a lot of the panic you're seeing in America right now and, you know, grocery stores ransacked and all sorts of insane behavior going on. A lot of that is because of all of these cancellations. Not be, just, by the way, the idea that somehow there's not a, a, a negative to canceling events so that people have something to do, something to watch, something to distract them, something to keep them calm, something to hold on to, something to look forward to, is insane to me. It is insane that we've just decided, you know what, there's no benefit to that. There's no residual benefit to having these events. There absolutely is. And, I, and, and if, if there was still a March Madness, even without spectators, and if the Masters hadn't been canceled, I mean, you know, if, if there was a way to do these things that was rational and, uh, you know, with taking precautions, I really believe that we would not be seeing this kind of panic. 
because it's it it percolates down. It, it's like it, it's you know the trickle down effect on society. Because now we've lost total confidence in everything. We have society is holding together by a thread at this point because we can't count on anything. My God, they canceled the Masters. My God, they canceled March Madness. My God, the baseball season's not going to start on time. NBA, NHL, everything else, it's all in that. And so now restaurants are starting to close. It's going to get it's going to get way worse. That might be the most important message out of this podcast. In the next two weeks, it is going to get way, way worse here in America because now we're going to finally see the numbers start to shoot up. Now that we're going to get legitimate testing, and now that it's had more time to percolate in various areas of the country, we're going to see numbers that are going to start to shoot up. And the media panic that has already been created, they've already created the foundation for this. Now people are going to start to lose their minds, and nerves are already frayed and we have nothing to distract us. It is all that we are focused on now, 24-7, and it's not going to stop for weeks, maybe months. Best case scenario, the next two weeks are hell, and then some sense of rationality will start to settle in. That's if based upon what everybody else has, has experienced in other countries. And, you know, there's so many aspects of this that are incredibly frustrating. One of them, as a stat guy, which I am, as a data guy, as a fact person, is that it's almost impossible to get facts and data that you can rely on that have been accumulated in a consistent fashion. Because you could make an argument at this point for almost any outcome, a logical argument, for almost any outcome of this virus, except, by the way, for the most extreme uh, projections and extrapolations, some of which uh, very popularly disseminated, had 150 million Americans getting the virus, which, if you do the math, means a couple million dead. There is no chance in the world that that's going to happen. There is no chance... Uh, we are seeing some good signs out of China. In fact, good signs throughout Asia. China has finally uh, gotten a hold on this thing. And now I realize that they took draconian measures, absolute draconian measures, even more so than what we have done so far. But they are now getting less than 100 new cases a day in China. The origins of this, the by far the largest country population-wise, and they are well below 5,000 deaths right now. Even if you extrapolate the number of, of cases still pending, they're probably not going to end up with more than 5,000 people dead out of this. Now, 5,000 people dead sounds like a lot. But this is the origins of this. And if you compare it to other outbreaks of this sort, including the common flu, 5,000 people in a country the size of China is nothing. It, now, they had to take enormous measures. Enormous measures. I get it. Uh, but this was a situation where they were by far the most vulnerable. South Korea has done an amazing job of curtailing this thing. It has not gone crazy yet in Japan, where they're still pretending that they're going to have the Olympics. Other places, however, it has been a massive problem. Iran and Italy. Now, the Italy situation is, I think, 
driving a lot of the panic in America. I, I really believe that the two things that have caused a lot of the panic in America are one, that it is hitting Italy so far. And the reason why Italy is so important is that I think people were willing to discount China, one, because it's the origin of, of where this happened, and therefore they were the most vulnerable. Two, I, I think that there's a lot of mistrust about China. China is not considered necessarily to be, uh, by a lot of people, a first world country, even though in many respects that it is. I think we are psychologically willing to say, okay, that's a Chinese thing, or that's an Asian thing. Uh, but Italy is a different story. Italy is a country we see as being very Western. It's obviously European. It's geographically far away from China, uh, and yet Italy is getting hit extremely hard by this, although their numbers, while terrible, are still not catastrophic in comparison to other similar situations that have happened in the past without uh, nearly this kind of fanfare. But Italy, psychologically, has had a major, major impact on the United States, and the fact that it's spreading throughout Europe is also having an enormous impact on the psychology of the United States. The other element, the other fact that happened, the development that occurred, is that Tom Hanks and his wife announced that they had it. And psychologically, even though they're not even in the United States of America right now, they're in Australia, uh, I think that had a massive impact on people. Because if you look at, at a lot of the things that occurred, a lot of it happened right after it was announced that, that Tom Hanks and his wife had coronavirus. And psychology matters in this. Psychology is huge in this. And that's part of why I think we have been far too willing to cancel events that could help the psychology of the nation and of the culture and, frankly, of the world. I have been criticized enormously on social media for taking this position. Enormously. Even by people who uh, are probably uh, somewhat fans of mine. People have been incredibly upset with me for being willing to say, hold on a second. Are we looking at this rationally? Do we have any sense of perspective? I am a thousand percent, a thousand percent in favor uh, of making sure you take all the precautions that you can that are rational, that are reasonable, that are going to help things and are not going to create horrendous new precedents. Horrendous new precedents. Because I believe that we are setting ourselves up here for no matter what happens with coronavirus, we are setting ourselves up for a situation where our entire way of life is now at risk. Because once this is over, and by the way, who's going to decide when it's over? That's my first concern. This is a situation where now that we have set the standard that all lives, all lives are precious and not one person can be vulnerable to this. Once we've set that as the standard, then how do you go back to normal? Because there's always going to be a threat. I mean, that is part of life. But we are, we are creating new rules, new rules as we speak for what our threshold is, what our standards are for risk in this world and in this life. Life has all sorts of risks. And boy, you want to see head, heads explode. Watch what happened yesterday. Go to my Twitter feed, Zygmunt Freud. Watch my Twitter feed. When I came out in favor, now that we've now changed all the rules, the rules are now that we must do everything we possibly can to eliminate all risk and, and all anticipated deaths in society. 
I have now come out in favor of banning all car travel. We must today, today we must ban all car travel because you know what's going to happen today? Because we are unwilling to do everything we can to save every life, 100 Americans are going to die in car accidents. And you know what's going to happen tomorrow? Another 100. Maybe not, you know, by the way, because the coronavirus may actually keep that down slightly because there's a lot less traffic. But on a normal day, on a normal day, 100 Americans are going to die each day, give or take, because of car accidents. And we are not willing to do what it takes to stop that. We could stop it tomorrow. Tomorrow by simply banning all car travel. Why won't we do that? <gasps> oh, John, that's not a good analogy. Yeah, it's a perfect analogy. Let me tell you why it's a perfect analogy. Not because, you know, people, well, John, uh, car accidents aren't contagious. By the way, that's not actually technically true because you ever heard of uh, multi-car pileups? Uh, but, but, but there's a chain reaction to that sometimes. But I digress. Here's where the analogy is. It's not about a car accident being the equivalent of a virus. It's about what you're willing as a society to do to eliminate anticipated death or destruction, or illness, or injury. And we're not willing to do that. We are not willing to give up cars. And I'm not suggesting in reality that we should be. But we've made that choice as a society. We made the choice as a society to endure, in this country, about thirty-five to 40,000 deaths a year, plus a whole lot more injuries, because we don't want to live without cars. We do not want to live without cars. So that's a risk that we have decided to take. Well, guess what? When it comes to things like the flu, and I get the coronavirus is worse than the flu. We don't know how much worse than the flu it is. The stats are all over the place. This is part of the frustration that I was referencing earlier before I, I changed my train of thought, and that is that we don't have the proper stats on this. And that's because partially we haven't had consistent Testing. The, the amount of testing that's being done here in this country is far, far less, and Trump deserves some responsibility for that, than in other countries. But you cannot compare its apples to oranges in countries where they've been doing a lot of testing versus countries where they haven't been doing a lot of testing because you don't know the death rate, for instance, until you know how many people have actually had this thing. So in some areas of the world, it seems like this thing is super contagious. In other areas of the world, it doesn't seem that contagious at all. And there's so many conflicting concepts here. As far as the contagious aspect, okay, I'm willing to accept this thing is super contagious. But if it's super contagious, and why? And even asking these questions gets people very upset on social media. If it's super contagious, why is it that there's no evidence that now 15 days after CPAC, the conservative conference just outside of Washington, D.C., where there, there was a VIP that apparently tested positive for coronavirus, why is there no evidence 15 days later of a CPAC-related outbreak? None. If it's so contagious, why is Donald Trump tested negative for this test? And boy, did the media want him to have coronavirus. Oh, my gosh. The, you know, they never said this publicly, but it's, it was obvious from their reaction. They, boy, they, they wanted him. In fact, most people aren't even still believing that he doesn't have coronavirus. That's how little trust, understandably so, uh, Americans have in their president, which is incredibly important to all this, and I'll get to that in a moment. But, but uh, you know, if, if it's so contagious, Trump has been exposed, apparently, to multiple people who have been either directly or indirectly to, exposed to coronavirus. Why doesn't Trump have it? If it's so contagious... 
the Utah Jazz, a basketball team, which is about as tight-knit as you can possibly have, only two of their players got it, even though one of them was was the reason why a lot of the, these uh, cancellations started. They had just played the Toronto Raptors. The Toronto Raptors, every single member of the Toronto Raptors got tested. Nobody had the virus. How How is that possible if, if this thing is so... Uh, it, it, it is so easily uh, uh, or so difficult to contain. If it's it, I mean, if it's going to spread that easily, you would think. Now, I'm not an expert. I realize that. I'm just using common freaking sense. Wh- why is that? I'm just asking a question. Why did nobody on the Raptors get this? Uh, it, uh, you would think that everybody on both teams would have this if it was that contagious. Anyway, so... We're creating a situation now where the standards for this are dangerously low. And this is going to impact how it's perceived, by the way. There is, there is no scenario, in my view, where the majority uh, uh, or even close to majority of those who I refer to as the alarmists, the alarmists are never going to admit, regardless of what happens here, that they were wrong, that they overreacted, because they'll always be able to say, see, we saved the world. Because they canceled the Masters, somehow this this prevented hundreds of thousands of deaths. Uh, That's crazy. I mean, it's just just absolutely nuts. Uh, But that's the world we now live in. It's just flat out ridiculous. By the way, Charles Barkley, who I just played there, uh, has been tested. Although at this point, I have not seen any results of a test. It happened several days ago. He is sick, but you know that's part of why these stats are so unreliable. Charles Barkley might have just been sick, but now everybody that's sick thinks they might have the coronavirus. And so I saw one stat. Uh, it was given at the Trump press conference on Friday by uh, a female uh, administrator, and she said that uh, in South Korea, only 4% of the people who got tested actually had coronavirus. 4%. So the stats are all over the place, and there's so much that we do not know, and that's another part that's driving this. The unknown, the fear of the unknown is so dramatic, and it allows the experts to extrapolate into uh, into projections that I think are counterproductive and are going to turn out to be wrong. Uh, for instance, in Ohio, then this is part of the things that, that, of the, the data points that make no sense. The, the The administrator in Ohio, who uh, the media keeps telling, oh, this is Ohio is run by a Republican governor, Mike DeWine, so therefore they can't be doing the bidding of Donald Trump uh, by making this bigger than it is. They're claiming that a hundred thousand uh, people in Ohio have coronavirus already, a hundred thousand, yet they've only had a, a handful of deaths. Okay, so riddle me this. I'm I'm willing to accept. Okay, maybe the virus is incredibly easy to get. Again, if that's the case, then why didn't the Toronto Raptors get it? Why did only two members of the Utah Jazz get it? Why did was there no outbreak break after CPAC? Okay, fine. Maybe that's just an anomaly. Maybe we, there's something I'm missing there. But if a hundred thousand people in Ohio have it, then doesn't this mean that the death rate is incredibly low? Like lower than even the common flu, based upon a hundred thousand versus a couple of deaths. None of this makes any sense. And when things don't make sense, I get very nervous. I, when, when things don't add up, I get very nervous, especially when I understand that the circumstances are there for a panic, 
for especially when the media is involved and especially by the way when we're in the middle of an election year and donald trump is at the center of this and that's where we get to donald trump because trump absolutely deserves some responsibility, maybe even a lot of responsibility for where we are, but not for the reasons that the media really is focusing on. Uh, let me tell you first where I think Trump is responsible for this. I have been saying for years, since since he was even be, uh, before he was president, maybe even before he was the Republican presidential nominee, that Trump was uniquely unqualified to be president of the United States. And part of what made him uniquely unqualified to be president of the United States is that I could not imagine him possibly being a productive president in the middle of a legitimate crisis. And part of the reason for that is, one, he's just not a qualified person. But two, he's a pathological liar. And when you are a pathological liar, you have no trust of the masses. The only people that are trusting you are the 42, 43% that support you. And so when you are that divisive and you are that against the news media and you blame everything on the news media and you are a pathological liar, okay, that, that's your way of survival. That's the path you chose to survive. But now there's another edge to that sword. Correct. And now you're dying by that sword. You live by that sword. You die by that sword. Correct. So when Trump decides, I'm going to live on a slash and burn mentality. I'm going to be divisive. I'm going to uh, only appeal to my base. I don't care about unifying the country. I don't care about lying. I will lie, 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 lie to my base because I need to to survive and to create for them a false narrative so that they will think that I am being attacked because I'm just making America great again, I'm sorry, that has a cost. And that has a cost not just for Trump, but for America and the world. And we are seeing that cost right now because it is obvious no one outside of his base believes a damn thing Donald Trump says. Correct. And it's understandable. It is understandable that no one believes a damn thing Donald Trump says. And let me take this out of the theoretical into the practical. If Barack Obama was still president of the United States, I truly believe that we would not be in the middle of a panic. And it's not because Barack Obama would have handled this all that differently. It's that when Barack Obama would have said, we have this under control, and this is not going to be that big of a deal, and we're going to continue on with life, that would have been perceived as a strong leader. That would have been perceived as someone who was telling us the truth. We could rely on that. There would have been no need. I am positive that if Obama had said everything that Trump had said up until this coming week, that leading up to this coming week, this cancellation contagion, that none of these major organizations would have completely canceled their events. Maybe they would have gone without spectators, but they were, there, there would not have been wholesale cancellation. And part of that's because Obama would not have allowed a panic to ensue. The media would have taken their cues from him. They would not have been drumming up this panic. They would not have become invested in this panic. They would not have been at least subconsciously motivated to get at Trump, especially in an election year, as the media clearly has been. And again, part of this is subconscious. Without a doubt, part of this is subconscious 
Maybe with some people it's more conscious than others. But I'm not a conspiracy guy. This is not, oh, we're out to get Trump, we're going to use this. No, 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 no. This is about the news media's view of Donald Trump, part of which is accurate. We can't trust anything he's saying. He doesn't believe in science, and that's another big element of this. I believe that part of what's happening here is almost a proxy war for man-made catastrophic climate change. That sounds crazy to people. What are you talking about, John? Huh? No, it is. If Trump believed in climate change, and therefore, in their minds, he was someone who believed in science, they would not be going after him on this. There would not be the same level of, of angst and derision and attack, and it would not be seen, as I referenced earlier, it would not be seen if you were saying things like I say, that we should be looking at this more rationally and not overreacting, that perception, the perception of that view would not be pro-Trump. And anything that's seen as pro-Trump is seen as anti-science. And being anti-science is being pro-virus. That's how insane things have gotten. Correct. So, so Trump is a, is a lightning rod here, a lightning rod that has created a perfect storm of circumstances that has put us all in an incredibly precarious situation, an incredibly precarious situation, and he deserves blame for it. I don't know whether or not his actual response to this is as bad as the media and the liberals are saying. Uh, it certainly appears as if we were slow. We certainly screwed up on testing. It, it certainly didn't help that he got rid of a lot of people that would have been on this uh, from, a, from a cabinet position perspective and from, from an administrative standpoint. There's a lot of things to criticize, but I'm not a 2020 hindsight guy. I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm someone who tries to be incredibly fair. And, you know, Obama made some mistakes, too. Obama had the swine flu, and I find it very interesting. The swine flu is very interesting here. In 2010, America got hit with the swine flu. 60 million people apparently got the swine flu. 275,000 people were hospitalized. 12,500 people died of the swine flu. Correct. No one gave a shit. No one gave a shit. There was no panic. Nothing got canceled. N Obama was president, and life went on. Now, there are differences. I, this is Zig being the fairest man in the world. Swine flu took a lot longer period of time to have its impact. You know, I, if, I, if I hear flatten the curve one more time, I'm going to shoot myself, by the way. Uh, um, and, and the curve on the swine flu was flatter than uh, coronavirus appears to be. So, so this took over a longer period of time, and therefore I get, I get that there is more reason to be uh, concerned about coronavirus because of this whole concept of overwhelming the healthcare system all at once. I get that. As I've said, I've heard flatten the curve more times than I uh, care to hear it. Um, so, so there are differences, but as far as the standard of what is considered unacceptable in this realm it, it's an interesting marker because it happened recently it happened under obama and guess who believes that it's an interesting marker donald trump correct because in friday's press conference which was far better than his address to the nation which was just awful correct uh trump exuded extreme confidence extreme confidence that 
what's going to happen here is not going to be as bad as swine flu because he referred to the response by the Obama administration. By the way, he also said he was not going to take any responsibility for any of this, which is, of course, just just unbelievable. And any other president would be devastating. You cannot be serious. So I don't want to leave that without being mentioned. I mean, the guy is still uh, unfit for office. He's narcissistic as hell. He will never admit mistakes. Uh, but okay, that's a given at this point. The the reality is that he set down the marker. He said clearly that that response was a disaster. Now, Trump is dumb enough, and he could be wrong, and he doesn't clearly believe in science, even though you know he's been bragging about his uh, uncle that it went to MIT. <laughs> That's his that's his level of expertise. He's a real he's an expert on all this because his uncle went to MIT. It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> oh my god. It's unbelievable we're in this situation. So 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 with all that said, Trump made it very clear that he considers the swine flu to be the standard. And uh, uh you know, maybe he's this dumb. Maybe he's this delusional. But what I saw, not just from him, but from the people around him who were a lot smarter and know a lot more about this and are perceived as the real experts on this, they were all exuding the same level of confidence. So if Trump is, is either a complete imbecile, uh, which is possible, or he's confident that this is not going to reach swine flu levels. And that's the marker he's setting down politically, that if we beat the swine flu, then this wasn't that bad. And, uh, you know, there's been a lot of liberals and liberals and progressives always, 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 always overplay their hand, especially with Donald Trump. Correct. Who have been declaring his presidency over. In fact, that was the title of a a very prominent column in The Atlantic uh, this week, although it wasn't done by a liberal. uh, But the the Atlantic is very liberal. Uh, The the reality is that the the title, I think, was the, the, the end of the Donald Trump presidency or the Donald Trump presidency is over or something like that. That's not true. That's not true. Uh, and, and it's not true partially because of the liberal overreaction on this. Because Trump has done something that could be very smart politically with regard to coronavirus. He has done a dramatic pivot. He has pivoted from this thing is not a big deal. This is uh, under control. Uh, we've done an amazing job here. Uh, he re- he used the word hoax. He didn't. He should not have used the word hoax. But he did not technically call coronavirus a hoax, although many in the media perceived it that way. But again, he should not have used the word. Uh, so he's gone from "Hey, everything's under control" to "Oh my gosh, this is the biggest challenge that government has ever faced." Now that's quite a pivot, and it's and in the rational world, people would go, "Wow, uh, you know." So he lied to us. So he doesn't know what he's doing. So he's making it up as he goes along. He's making it up as he goes along. That is all relevant and and legitimate, but that's all going to be forgotten. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to go through massive amounts of panic, and this will be perceived as a gigantic uh, crisis. And if we come out of this at the other end, and the numbers are significantly less than, say, swine flu then guess who's going to be able to declare victory? Guess who's going to be able to say he handled the crisis better than Obama? Donald Trump. Correct. Now, that's something we don't know yet. 
I, I bizarrely actually hope that's the case because it will mean fewer people died than are than than is feared that will die. But that's a situation that is, I think, plausible at this point. Now, will that mean that he will uh, get no damage out of this? No. There's always going to be damage because on <laughs> the record on his presidency is not only going to include impeachment, it's going to include, by the way, in his fourth year, we didn't have a March Madness basketball tournament, and we didn't have a Masters, for God's sake. So, I mean, that to me is worse than, that's more of an asterisk. That's more than a, of a black mark than being impeached. I mean, because that no other non-wartime president has ever had that. So, so there's going to be damage, not to mention the stock market has lost about 6,000 points, most of which happened after he said, go buy stocks, which in a rational world should be, have great damage done, uh, even among his base. Because, you know, theoretically, some people took his advice. <laughs> the stock market didn't take his advice, but somebody did, I'm sure. And they bought stocks and they've lost uh, quite a bit of money so far after he urged people on uh, February 24th that the stock market was looking very good to him. That was wrong. Correct. And that should be something that should be punished. Correct. But the reality, so there's going to be damage here. I mean, his argument for how great the economy is, is going to be gone. It's going to be gone because the economy is, is going to go into, we're going to go into at least a temporary recession here, if not worse than that. Uh, the stock market is probably going to go down further in the next couple of weeks before hopefully it stabilizes and recovers. But I'm just saying that there is a scenario here because of this massive overreaction that has now given Trump an opportunity. You know, a lot of, a lot of people have always said in crisis there is opportunity. And because Trump has now pivoted, and now because he has the full force of the federal government behind him, he can basically do anything he wants. He's declared a national emergency. Uh, all this money is now going to fight this. He's, he's allowed to use anything he can to try to fix uh, the economy or, or stabilize the economy and, and stabilize the markets. He has now all the weapons of the federal government at his disposal. And while he's a moron, and most of the people around him don't definitely don't create a lot of confidence, that's a lot of power. That's a lot of power that he has now. And the expectations for this thing by a lot of people are completely out of whack. So he's in the, you know, one of the great benefits that Trump has had throughout his political career is being underestimated and being able to uh, uh, exceed expectations because the expectations for him have been so low. Well, my God, the expectations for this right now among a large part of the population based upon the media coverage is anything better than a complete collapse of our society, a, a total depression, and hundreds of thousands, if not more, people dying. That's a win. So I, I can see, and it's early yet, and it's going to get worse before it gets better, I can see a scenario where Trump ends up, if not winning here, at least surviving. And it's partially because of the overreaction. And that overreaction was absolutely positively caused, in part, subconsciously, by Donald Trump being president. Part of which he is responsible for, and part of it, he's not. Most of which he is, actually. It's the pathological liar thing. Live by the lie. Die by the lie. It's being divisive. It's being a lightning rod. It's not being able to unify. And, you know, the whole being anti-science thing, I think that's, that's a, a, a lower-level uh, subconscious motivator here. That, that whole uh, proxy war for man-made climate change. 
because it's the same forces. It's almost exactly the same forces on each side of this thing. And almost regardless of what the results are, nobody is going to be able to declare victory. Uh, Nobody is going to admit defeat. No one ever admits defeat, especially not Donald Trump. Because we've now set up the rules in a way that is insane-making. Because now, and this is one of my great concerns in all this, now the rules are the alarmists always win. The alarmists always win because it's a no-lose proposition. Because if you raise all the alarms and you cause panic and you cause massive overreaction and it turns out as bad or nearly as bad as you claim it's going to be, you were right. And you did everything you could to stop it. And so, therefore, you at least get points for the effort, and we should have listened to you sooner. If it turns out to not be as bad as you claimed, guess what? You get credit because you stopped it. We did what you said, even though we really didn't, and even though they didn't really have much impact on the end result. But in theory, because we overreacted, we were able to keep this from being a complete catastrophe. So there's a no-lose situation there for the alarmists. Well, guess what that means? Guess what happens in the future? When there's zero, zero blowback, zero negative to being an alarmist, and when you're on the other side of the fence with you know me and a couple other people on Twitter <laughs> saying, hold on a second, because nobody is willing to stand up for the other side because you get run over. The virtue signalers win every time. You are seen as being pro-virus in this situation. If you just say, really? Should we, should we not maybe have some sense of rationality hold on to some semblance of life i mean again i am all for doing everything we can to take precautions i take this very very seriously my wife started buying food three weeks ago she's very very proud of herself right now very proud of herself Uh, we're not going outside we're washing our hands all the time i take this i am not in any way shape or form suggesting this is not a significant deal that we shouldn't be taken seriously but what about proportion And I just think that in the future now, we have set an incredibly dangerous precedent. And by the way, we have also created a blueprint for our enemies, for terrorists, for the Russians. By the way, I'm I'm, I'm sure that there are people out there who think this is all some sort of a a Russian deal because the Russians haven't really been impacted very much at all by this. And uh, I'm not suggesting that's a joke. I'm not saying that that's the case. I'm saying that... The reality is that now that we've created the blueprint for how to destroy our society, this would be incredibly easy, incredibly easy for someone to do on purpose. And you wouldn't even really need a, a real pandemic. All you need is, is, is a carefully chosen uh, way of creating a panic and letting in, in a situation where the media became invested in that panic and the political circumstances allowed that wildfire to explode. I mean, this is not far-fetched. This is part of why you don't cave in immediately because in doing so, you're making it almost impossible to go back to normal life because no one's going to have the balls to be the first person to go back to normal life because they'll have no political cover. And you don't create precedents for the future. You don't create incentives in the future. Oh, this is how we bring down the United States. We bring down the United States because... They are so fearful of anything they can't see, any sort of a virus pandemic that might kill a few thousand people, even though the flu kills between 30 and 70,000 people a year. Uh, but if, if we give it a name and, uh, and it's seen as somehow separate from the flu 
and uh, and let's you know, especially if it's an election year and the media doesn't like who's running for president, then uh, we got something here. That, then we got. Then we can create a panic. Then they will destroy their own economy. They will destroy their own way of life. They will set rules for the future that make it impossible for the United States to be the United States of America. And and that's where I'm always at on these situations. Uh, I am not a. Even though I'm getting old, I got two young children, a seven and a two-year-old daughter. Uh, I want their future. I want them living in something somewhat similar to the United States I grew up in that was supposed to be a special country, where we took responsibility for our own actions, where we valued freedom and liberty over everything else. Well, now we're giving all this up. We're giving up our way of life all out of fear, a fear that while uh, legitimate is being, I believe, at this point, blown out of proportion. And again, I'm someone who believes that the next two weeks are going to be horrific. There's going to be a lot of people who are going to die in this country. There's going to be a lot of people hospitalized in this country. The number there's going to there's going to be enormous panic because everyone's going to think that the numbers aren't going to go in the other direction. And there's also a lag here that's going to cause a problem. There's about a, a seven to ten day or somewhere in that range lag from the time that someone gets the virus to the time that their statistics end up being publicly reported. Because they, they got to go to the hospital, they got to get tested, and then, of course, there's even more of a lag as to whether or not they survive or not because people don't die instantly from this when they do die. So the next couple of weeks are going to be absolutely horrific. Horrific. And it might be longer than that. I, I believe that we're, we're in for at least eight weeks before we get back to some semblance of normalcy. And a lot of people are already being hurt by this economically. A lot of people are already being hurt by this psychologically. And we're just at the beginning. We're just at the beginning. That's the scary part. Nerves are already frayed. And there's going to be a lot of shit that hits the fan here. Because we, have, we are in a perfect storm where there's nothing to hold us together. And we don't even have a freaking NCAA basketball tournament or a Masters golf tournament to distract us. Nothing. This is a perfect storm of horrendousness that is going to happen. But a lot of it's going to be self-induced. A lot of it's going to be psychological. A lot of it's going to be, once again, because Donald Trump is president. This is the price you pay, Colt 45 assholes, for giving us this guy as president. I hope you enjoyed your tax cut a couple of years ago. I hope you enjoyed those two Supreme Court justices because this is the price we are paying. We are paying for having a pathological liar who divides for his own political survival and doesn't give a shit about anything else but himself. That's the price we're going to pay here. And the price is going to be enormous. And it's just beginning. Now, on that very bright note, we're going to take a break before we uh, take a look at the political ramifications of all this. And here's an interview with uh, Tom Bauer, the founder of our sponsor, Imbue CBD. Tom, thanks so much for joining us and for your sponsorship of the program. Please uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your company, Imbue Botanicals. Sure, John. Imbue Botanicals produces really the most extensive line of premium clinical-grade full-spectrum CBD products, including tinctures, capsules, topical lotions and salves and even award-winning beauty products. They're available in multiple strengths for both people as well as pets. Our premium Colorado-grown hemp products are non-GMO, cruelty-free, and even vegan. 
Now, a lot of people might not be that familiar yet with CBD. It's getting a lot of publicity. But for those who aren't, what is CBD and why do you guys think it's so important? CBD is short for cannabidiol. It's one of the 115 or so cannabinoids that are found in the cannabis plant. It's generally accepted as the cannabinoid or or the element, basically, that provides the health benefits for cannabis. But science has shown really that CBD works best when combined with all the other cannabinoids and the natural terpenes that are found naturally in the plant, which is why our products are full spectrum, meaning they offer a full cadre of all the cannabinoids and terpenes for maximum effectiveness. Now, Tom, you mentioned that Imbue uses hemp. Tell our audience, if you will, the difference between hemp and marijuana and why your product is not the latter. Great, John. It's really important to understand this. You know, we're all familiar with medical marijuana. Our products are, are not made from marijuana. They're actually made from hemp. Basically, hemp and marijuana are both the cannabis sativa plant. The difference is that hemp contains extremely low levels of THC, which is the cannabinoid that makes you high when you ingest or smoke marijuana. By law, hemp must contain 0.3% or less of THC by dry weight. So, so low, basically, that you can't get high from the product. So, in essence, basically, with hemp, you get all the health benefits of medical marijuana without the high or the psychoactive effect of THC. I should also add here that Congress last year passed the 2018 Farm Bill, which essentially legalized hemp federally and descheduled all the non-THC cannabinoids. So, Essentially, it's, it's, uh, it's legal, which obviously people want to know. You know, can, can I buy it? Can I use it? It's legal. Now, when, when I use it, it's really helped my sleeping. I've only just started using uh, some of your products. But tell us, uh, what are some of the benefits that our listeners might find if they, if they use Imbue Botanical products? Really great question, John. We're actually not allowed to make claims about CBD or products per the FDA. Just an aside, if your listeners come across sites out there that are making health claims, we should always just avoid them. Just you don't want to deal with, with folks like that. It's, it's not legal to do that. But that doesn't mean that there aren't health benefits to CBD. We at Imbue Botanicals always encourage our customers to do their own research. There is a ton of information and studies available on the Internet. You want to talk to your physician, your independent pharmacist, even your veterinarian. You know, become informed. We've seen some absolutely amazing things personally and with our customers. Obviously, you know, the onus, if you will, is on each individual to to go out there and, and do the kind of research to see if it may be a fit for the kind of things that they're experiencing. Also, you know, check out our website, which has a ton of additional information as well. And that website is? It's www.imbuecbd.com. It's www.imbuecbd.com. Now, you mentioned the FDA, and just before we taped this interview, there was a news story where the FDA put out a warning and sent letters to, I think, 15 different CBD companies. Yours was not one of them. It was perceived as the FDA basically, I don't know, seemed to be like, backing away a little bit from CBD. What was your interpretation of what the FDA did and and how should our listeners interpret it? That's an extremely good question as well, John. And I think first and foremost is what the FDA is doing, especially when they're sending out letters to companies that they send letters out to, is doing their job. Their job is to really protect the American public from, you know, basically, you know, drugs that shouldn't be there, that aren't doing what they're supposed to do, that can cause harm, and also making sure that companies are doing what they're supposed to do. In in the case of these letters, these companies were making health claims simply because of how FDA operates and and the way that, uh, you know, CBD, which is basically a kind of a a brand new uh, thing for FDA, 
they're not allowed to make. You know, I'm glad that they're doing that. You know, we never make claims uh, at Imbue Botanicals. That's something that, that is, again, is, is goes back to the customer to do a lot of their own research on. They also came out with some basic overviews and essentially said you should really know what you're doing before you take CBD. It's not necessarily something you should be taking in water and in food products. You should basically get the kind of information that you need and talk to your healthcare team, your physician, your pharmacist, your, your veterinarian to make sure that there's a medical professional, you know, kind of assisting in the process. Now, in my experience, having used the product and seen the packaging and everything, you guys are totally first class, but first class comes with some expense. You guys are a little bit more expensive than your competitors. Tell us, tell us why you bring more value. We are more expensive than some folks. And Certainly not more expensive than others, but uh, but we're, we are a higher price product, and the reason for that is, is where we grow, how we extract, how we formulate our products. We do that for maximum effectiveness, and you know what our folks tell us, and whether they're the pharmacies that we sell to or the customers that use our product or patients who use our product every day, they tell us that the product works and works better than things that uh, other products that they bought. It's more expensive to do it correctly, but ultimately that's obviously what customers want. If you're going to spend the money, they want something that works. And that's what our products do. So Tom, if our listeners want to buy your products and, or learn more about them, where should they go? Go to our website. It's www.imbuecbd. That's www.imbuecbd.com. Imbuecbd.com. Tom, thanks so much for your time and your sponsorship. John, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing. Appreciate it. So it cannot be ignored and we have not done so in this podcast, that all of this regarding the coronavirus is happening right in the middle of an election season. There's absolutely no doubt whatsoever that is exacerbating everything about this. It's exacerbating the media coverage, the liberal reaction, and it's also impacting, obviously, Trump's reaction. Trump decided at first, this is no big deal. I'm going to pretend this is not a big deal because I'm running for re-election, and I don't want it to be perceived that this happened on my watch. But now... After everything got canceled and the market crashed, he had no choice. So he made this pivot that I referred to earlier in the podcast from this being nothing to this being huge. And he had no choice. But as I mentioned before, this provides him an opportunity. But I think we're now at the point where this election is really, at least for the foreseeable future, is all about how the coronavirus will be perceived. It will be all about that. How much does it kill the economy? Uh, How much does it destroy Trump's personal popularity? Does it eat into his base? Remarkably, so far, and again, there is a lag here like there is with the coronavirus, but so far, there is zero indication, zero indication that any of this has harmed Donald Trump's approval rating. You cannot be serious! Which is unbelievable. I mean, if, if, if a massive market crash, if, uh, if the fear of, of, at this point, hundreds of thousands of people dying, which I don't believe is going to happen, if the, if the cancellation of real life, I mean, I have always believed that, it, that the coronavirus was incredibly lethal to Trump because it's something that impacts real life. And I've always felt that unlike Russia and everything else that I thought was legitimate in Ukraine, Part of the reason why uh, that didn't impact his approval rating is because it did not uh, impact real people's lives. Uh, This clearly does. But yet, so far, and that could change this week, 
but so far, there's no indication that Trump's approval rating has been impacted at all. It is still higher than it was uh, a year ago. It is still at levels that are within the ballpark of him being reelected against uh, a candidate, Joe Biden, who is not going to create massive turnout on his own, especially among young people and still might have a Bernie Sanders problem. So we've not seen any of that kind of erosion yet. However, there were two polls in Arizona. Arizona is interesting because Arizona is a secondary uh, uh, key state. The key states in this election will be Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. Those are three states that Trump won uh, last time around, which if he had lost, he would have lost to Hillary Clinton. He also won Arizona. The secondary uh, key states are Arizona, North Carolina, and Florida. If Democrats win Arizona, North Carolina, or Florida, any of those three, then it becomes very, very difficult to see how Trump wins. Because if you lose Arizona, you're probably going to lose one of the others, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. You might even lose Florida, North Carolina. I mean, Arizona is a fairly unique state, but if if you believe in the the rising and lowering tide theory of of politics, that if, for instance, if you're losing Arizona, then you're probably doing poorly elsewhere. This was really bad news for Donald Trump because there were two polls out of Arizona in the last couple of days, both of which have Joe Biden beating Donald Trump fairly easily by six or seven points in Arizona with Trump down in like the 43, 44 percentile range, two different polls. I don't know why they had two different polls at the same time, but The reality is, and what was really interesting, is that one of those polls actually had Trump beating Sanders uh, by, I think, like six points. It was very odd. Yet Biden beat Trump in both polls uh, by a significant margin, margin that was outside of the margin of error. Now, that doesn't mean any, you know, for 100 percent that Biden will beat Trump in Arizona. But that's an indication of a massive problem for Donald Trump. Because uh, if he's losing right now to Biden in Arizona, and we're going to be headed for another couple of weeks or maybe in a couple of months of really bad stuff uh, where people die, uh, the chaos ensues, the economy grinds to a halt, the stock market continues to go down, then this thing is over. I mean, if, you, <laughs> if, if Trump can't compete in Arizona, then he's going to lose. Uh, but there, you know, I am still of the belief, as I've said, that there is a scenario, there is a path here that Trump could end up coming out of coronavirus not being looking as bad as thought, at least among his base. We don't know that yet. We will know that in probably a month, certainly in eight weeks. Uh, in, in a month to eight weeks, we'll have a lot more information to be able to evaluate that. So because. I still believe that is a theoretical possibility. I'm not diminishing his chances for re-election as much as I might normally. I agree that you can make a very strong argument that Trump's not only going to lose, but he's going to get shellacked based upon the current factual record. But I think that there is the opportunity that the, this, uh, this tidal wave that's coming in could end up reversing itself in, in at least some degree, to some degree, depending on how the next uh, four to eight weeks go. So with that, I'm going to be rather conservative in my updated projection 
for the 2020 election. And I'm going to say that Donald Trump's chances currently of re-election against Joe Biden are 35 percent, still down significantly than what they were a couple weeks ago when we thought Bernie Sanders uh, might be the Democratic uh, presidential nominee. So 35 percent. Please, no wagering on this because that might help spread coronavirus. Uh, That'll do it for this edition of the Individual One podcast. Until Wednesday, assuming we're still allowed to do a podcast because of the coronavirus panic, uh, please make sure you stay safe, wash your hands, take uh, all the precautions you can, but, but try to live some semblance of a life, people. Try to, this is still, this is still a, a, a life that needs to be worth living. Uh, so try to get outside at least a little bit. Uh, I, I promise that's not going to cause you to get coronavirus. I will take full responsibility if it does, as long as you're, you're keeping your safe social distance. Don't, social distancing. That's another phrase that I, 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 can, I can live without for another day. But until uh, Wednesday, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. Follow us on Twitter at IndividualOnePod. And until uh, the next time we speak for episode number 95, my name is John Ziegler. This is the Global Story Network.